You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. Today, we bring you a message that J. Oswald Sanders presented at MBI Missions Conference 1987. J. Oswald Sanders was general director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship in the 1950s and the author of more than 40 books on the Christian life. Now, here is J. Oswald Sanders on Today in the Word radio. This morning, I want to speak about the crisis of the coal. And naturally, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. There are few crises so crucial as that which determines the whole of the future course of life. And to some here, this week is just such a crisis. It was 66 years ago that I sat at a meeting just as you are sitting here this morning, and I faced exactly the same question as you are facing now. And looking back, I thank God that he enabled me to respond in a positive way. As I indicated yesterday, The realization of my missionary career was postponed for 33 years, but the Lord kept me true to that commitment. You know, if he can do that for a weak person like me, he can do it for you. You don't need to fear the future when you know your guide and what a wonderful guide we have. You stand at a point of life when you're making crucial, life-determining decisions. Now it suggests that a good way to face it is to look forward 20 years and say, how will I wish, what decision would I wish I had made in 20 years' time? Or maybe project yourself into eternity and say, what decision will I wish I had made when I stand before my Lord. Then you get things in perspective because so often 
we view it from the immediate present and our own present interests. But the decision made today is something which has eternal consequences. And the decision you make today will reverberate down the corridors of eternity. How important then that we approach it with a positive and a, a, a view that is an act of faith, not merely an act of commitment. Everyone who has a spark of ambition in their makeup desires to live a life that is going to be significant, significant for God, significant for our fellow men. And I know of no calling that can be more significant and have more far-reaching consequences than a life spent in the service of those who are overseas or spent at homeland, in the homeland with a commitment just as real and just as definite as that of those who go overseas. I'm not one of those who thinks that those who stay at home are second-class citizens. To stay at home in the will of God is the highest thing one can do, and to go abroad out of the will of God is the most disastrous thing one can do. No, the, thing to, the most important factor is where does God want me to serve? And that's why I'm speaking about the crisis of the call. Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, was a man who was one-eyed. He saw only one thing. He said, this one thing I do, and the one thing was Navigators. When he died, Billy Graham gave the funeral address. And in it he said, here was a man who did not say these 40 things I dabble in. He said, this one thing I do. And I believe if I had my time over again, I would say, Lord, I want to do the one thing that was nearest to your heart, and that is to be a part of getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth. There are two ways we can face the crisis of the call. We can ask ourselves certain questions like this. We can say, well, uh, where will I find self-fulfillment? Where will I feel most comfortable? Where will I get job satisfaction? Where will my gifts and training find their fullest employment? That's one way you can approach it. And, uh, of course, there's something in those questions. Nobody, doesn't wa nobody wants to live a life that is not fulfilled. But I believe one, there's only one question you need to ask, and that is, what is the sphere of service? Where is the place God has prepared for me? When Jesus was speaking to James and John, after they made their outrageous request to be number one and number two in his kingdom, he said, those places are for those for whom they have been prepared. That's the NIV rendering. The Good News Bible puts it even more strongly. So those places are for those to whom God has already assigned them. That's, that's a wonderful thought. God has already assigned a place for you, the ideal place where you can serve in his kingdom. 
And your job is not to wonder whether you'll get job satisfaction or whether your gifts and training will be used. God never wastes anything. You get to the place that God's prepared for you and all these other things will look after themselves. So ask yourself, what, where do you want me to serve, Lord? That's what, that's what Paul said. The moment he recognized the Lordship of Christ, his next per question was, what do you want me to do? And I'll do it. And he moved forward from there. You see, in the first, you're consulting your own interests, your own self-interest. In the second, you're choosing God's will. If you make the, the uh, decision yourself, all you've got to rely on is your own fallible judgment. But if you go to the place that God has prepared for you, you have the benefit of his omniscience. He knows where your life can be most productively spent, where you will get the greatest enjoyment. So seek the place that God has prepared for you. And he won't keep you in the dark. He will guide you as you're willing to be guided. There are many ideas about a call, many confusing voices, and it's not a simple thing. Uh, I don't pose as an authority, but I faced it too as a young man, and I've heard hundreds, I suppose thousands of testimonies from missionaries and others. And there is a, a general consensus, I think, that is helpful. There are many questions that clamor for an answer as we face it. Can the Great Commission be fulfilled at home as well as abroad? That's a valid question. Is there a special call for cross-cultural missionary work? Does the need constitute a call? What are the relative claims of home and abroad? These are questions that are in your mind, I'm no doubt, as they are in mine. What, what is a call in any case? I think one of the best definitions I've heard of a call is one by Leslie Lyle. And this is what he says. A call is a conviction that steadily grows when faced with the facts so that sooner or later it becomes a matter of obedience or disobedience. I'll say that again. A call is a conviction that steadily grows when faced with the facts so that sooner or later it becomes a matter of obedience or disobedience. It's not merely something that is a sudden thing. It can be. Sometimes there, God, God doesn't repeat himself. He calls everybody in, in, in their own way. But a call is something that as you pray about it, as you seek information, as the facts are placed before you, the more you pray, the more the call, the sense of call deepens until at last you've either got to obey or disobey. It's when you've got a sense of compulsion that if I don't go do this, I'll be disobeying God. That's a call that will stand the test of the difficult times. Uh, I would be very uh, loath to stake my future on a, a, a single verse of Scripture. I believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures without any uh, reservation whatsoever. But I think I would want more than that to be 
be behind me. I want to know that as I prayed, God was working into my heart a conviction, not merely an opinion, but a conviction that this is the way He wants us to go. You know, uh, single verse guidance is very dangerous. My father-in-law was Joseph Kemp, and he was the minister of the Baptist Tabernacle in Auckland. Well, there was a rather naive uh, Scottish lady who used to be in his church in Scotland who came to Auckland, New Zealand, and she was uh, wondering about uh, what church she would join when she came to Auckland. When she got there, she was going around different churches, and she thought she might go to the tabernacle, but she was reading her Bible one day, and uh, she read this. I have... Uh, now, what, what, what was the word? I mean, I have rejected the tabernacle of Joseph. Well, his name was Joseph, and he was the minister of the Baptist tabernacle. So she decided that, well, that church is not for me because God has rejected the tabernacle of Joseph. That's an illustration of the danger of single verse, uh, single verse guidance. No. It's when there is a trend of a lifetime, when God has been moving in your heart and in other ways has been confirming to you what he wants you to do. There is a general obligation resting on all believers without any exception. As go, the Lord said, or as you go, make disciples of all nations. We've all got to be in motion. Our Lord's commission was without any geographical limitations. It's to go into all the world. It's without any racial discrimination. It's to all nations. There's no class distinctions. It's to go to every creature. And this general obligation rests upon us all. That's what Paul said in Romans 1.14. I feel myself under a sort of universal obligation. I owe something to all men from cultured Greek to ignorant savage. And that commission can be fulfilled at home if, if, that is God's will for the life. And that's the question. I was in a conference with Mr. George Murray, the general director of the Bible Christian Union earlier this year. He told me that when he was a younger man, uh, he, he was interested in becoming a missionary, and, uh, but he didn't have any call. He said, if you'd asked me, uh, are you willing to go as a missionary? I'd say yes, and if you asked him next year, he'd still be willing to go, but he said he didn't go. Then he attended a conference where God met with him, and he had to face up to his real attitude. And he said, to my surprise, as I thought it over, I thought my, my attitude is this, Lord, I'm willing to go, but I'm planning to stay. Anybody here find themselves in that position? Willing to go, but planning to stay? He said, so long as that negative attitude was mine, I received no call to the mission field. But then I decided I, I, I'm going to change from the negative to the positive. The Lord said, go and make disciples of all nations. There's no reason why I shouldn't go. So he said, I changed it. And I said, Lord, from now on, I'm planning to go, but I'm willing to stay. He said it wasn't long after I made that decision that I got my call. 
my brothers and sisters, I believe it's when we have that positive attitude, not the negative attitude. So long as a ship is moored to the wharf, she may have on board the most competent pilot who knows the harbor backwards. He cannot steer that ship to its desired haven while it's moored to the wharf. And so often we're tied. We're willing to go, oh yes, but we're planning to stay. What are you planning to do, to go or to stay? Now, you'll notice that in what he said, he, he said, I'm willing to stay. Lord, if you want me to stay, redirect me to stay. I'm willing to stay, and I know if you direct me to stay, that will be the best place for service. But there he was. Once he placed himself in the Lord's hands, the Lord soon uh, opened the way, and now he's doing a significant work for God throughout the world. Well, I do trust that you will adopt the positive attitude. Get out into midstream, and then the Lord can guide you. Some people say, you know, I, I don't feel any missionary call. Do you have to feel a call? I, I hear a call. Do you get the point? Our feelings are, are so fickle, so changeable, but when you hear a call, that is not something that changes. What did it say about Isaiah? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he heard it and he obeyed it. He responded to it. You hear a call, you don't feel it. Don't depend on your subtle changing emotions. John Wesley said, God generally guides me by presenting reasons to my mind for acting in a certain way. You see, there is an intellectual component as well as an emotional component in guidance. There is an emotional component, of course. I'm not saying that we're not to feel it, but the initial thing is not the feeling. The initial thing is hearing the call of God and responding positively to it. God has got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for mine. It's not a detailed roadmap. It's not a blueprint. How did the Lord Jesus get his guidance? He didn't have any blueprint in front of him, but every day he began the day by going before his father and saying, Father, guide me throughout today. And as he stayed in constant fellowship with his father, he was guided every day by his father. And this is the way we can get our guidance too. God has got a plan for our lives and he'll reveal to us step by step as we walk step by step with him. Somebody said, I'd rather have an experienced guide than a detailed road map. You would too, wouldn't you? And Martin Luther said, I do not know the way that I take, but well do I know my guide. And it's a wonderful thing to know that God is there. In Psalm 32 and 8, he pledged himself. He said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you shall go. I will guide you with my eye upon you. There is the personal promise of our personal God who will give us personal guidance as we are seeking to follow him. Well, how can I find God's will? I think the first and perhaps the most important thing is be absolutely willing to do it. 
You can't do business with God by saying, uh, Lord, you show me your will and then I'll decide whether or not I'll do it. He won't give you any guidance on that. But you come to him and say, Lord, show me what your will is and whatever it is, whether it's what I would choose or not, show me your will and I'll do it. Then you're in business. Then the Lord can guide you. There was a girl at the Ben Lippin conference who was giving her testimony. And she held up a blank sheet of paper with her name written on the bottom. And she said, this is God's plan for my life. She said, I've signed my name at the bottom and I'm leaving God to fill it in. That was surrender. That was dependence of God. That was a, an act of faith, an act of trust in God. And God did not deceive her. God did not let her down. Be obedient to all the light God has given you up till now. Are you obeying what God has shown you up till now? Are you doing the next thing? Paul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, all right, rise, go up into the city, and it'll be told you what you'll do. And when he went there, he found that the Lord had gone before. Ananias was there, and he told him, you'll go far hence to the Gentiles. So in one hit, he got told that he was not going to serve in the homeland. He was going to go far hence. And he wasn't going to preach to the Jews. He was going to go to the Gentiles. So see, he took one step and another step and another step, and that led on right through life. And that's the way God leads. He doesn't show us the end from the beginning. We are, are curious animals. We want to see the end, but God doesn't show us the end. We sing the hymn very piously, one step enough for me, but we want to see the whole track. But God doesn't do it that way. One step enough for me. Seek the advice of a mature Christian you can trust, but don't let them make your decision. You've got to live with the decision. It's your life that's at stake. Polonius' advice to his son, take each man's censure, but reserve thy judgment. You've got to make the decision. Don't give it to anybody else. Then Weigh up the pros and cons, the things for and things against. And as you do it, ask the Holy Spirit to sway your mind in the direction of the will of God. You have that promise in, in James, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. God will guide you if you are willing to be guided. Make the best decision you can, believing that the Holy Spirit has been guiding you in your thinking. And then act on it. Circumstances may or may not confirm it. I've had to make uh, decisions where no circumstances and no confirmation uh, at all. But there came the deepening conviction from God, this is what you have to do. And the confirmations came after the decision was made. Sometimes they come before. Extraordinary guidance sometimes comes, but usually in the more immature stage of the Christian life than later on. Later on, as we become more mature in the ways of God, God leaves us a good deal to walk with Him and learn from Him and make our decisions in fellowship with Him. Many influences will try to deflect us from the will of God. 
There's a story told, a Greek story of Atlanta and Hippomenes. Atlanta was a very fleet-footed girl. She could race all the fellows in, the, in their, their races. And one day she threw out a challenge. She challenged any young man to race with her. If he could beat her, she would, he, he could have her hand in marriage. But if she beat them, they would forfeit their lives. Well, she must have been a very attractive girl because the young fellows lined up. And one by one she defeated them, and one by one they forfeited their lives. But uh, there was one young fellow named Hippomenes, and he was determined he was going to get her. So uh, he challenged her. But before the race began, he conceived and concealed on his body three golden apples. I don't know where he put them, but that's not in the story. <laughs> but the race began, and Atlanta streaked away, and he felt himself being left behind, and he took one of those golden apples, and he rolled it in front of her. And she, when she saw the glittering thing, she couldn't help it. She knelt down and picked it up. And meanwhile, he streaked ahead. So that, but quickly she overtook him, and there he's, this is my chance. He takes out his second golden apple. Will she stop this time? He rolls it in front of her, and sure enough, she couldn't resist it again. And once again, he streaks ahead. And now they're drawing near the tape. And once again, she passes him, and he thinks, this is my last chance. And he rolls the third apple in front of her, Will she stop this time? She almost didn't, but she couldn't resist it. And she stooped down and picked it up, and he went forward and touched the tape, and they were married and lived happily ever afterwards. <laughs> well, that's the story. But you, but you know, the devil has his golden apples, which he will roll in front of you. And to some of you, it will be a literal golden apple. And you will have to choose between money and the will of God. Don't let Satan deflect you. You know, gold is not currency in heaven. It's of so little value that all they do it is use it for is road metal. You use it for paving roads. It's, it's a, <laughs> wouldn't it be a terrible thing if you worked and worked and hard in order to accumulate money and when you got to heaven you found all you had was a heap of road metal? But that, that, that may sound facetious, but that's really true. Why invest your life in that which is spiritually reproductive. Live again in the lives of other people who otherwise might have gone to a lost eternity. Be the messenger of God to turn them from darkness to light and from the kingdom of Satan to God. Sir Frederick Treves was a great British surgeon. And on one occasion he was traveling in Syria by train. Another train came along and on the same line, and there was a terrible collision, and many people were killed and injured. And Sir Frederick wasn't injured. So he quickly jumped down from his carriage to see if there was somebody who was seriously hurt, whom he could help. And he found the engine driver had been thrown out of his cab, and there he was, obviously very seriously injured. 
Sir Frederick knelt down beside him and with his clever surgeon's hands, he felt the body to determine the extent of his injuries. And after he'd completed his examination, he rose to his feet and those who were nearby heard him say, as he walked away, I could have saved him if only I had my instruments. I could have saved him if only I had my instruments. My brothers and sisters, I wonder if God is looking down on the 2,700 million people who are without hope and without God in the world and he's saying, I could save them if only I had my instruments. Are you prepared in a new way to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message titled The Crisis of the Call that J. Oswald Sanders presented at MBI Missions Conference 1987. J. Oswald Sanders was General Director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship in the 1950s and the author of more than 40 books on the Christian life. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.